The Ghostbreaker, a novel based upon the play by Charles Goddard and Paul Dickey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 10. A Wager with the Duke. What a curious sea voyage! The Duke's attempt to warn the captain of the nature of this one particular passenger never eventualized. When the Mauritania had finally left behind all sight of America, Jarvis relaxed his severity. "'You may enjoy yourself, Excellency,' he said as he put away the revolver. "'But I would like to speak to you alone, as the representative of the Princess, on a most important mission. I am compelled to look after her interests in a definite manner.' He faced the girl meaningly. "'Will you excuse us for a moment's interchange of pleasantries?' She nodded and retired to her bedroom with Nita. "'What do you want, you scoundrel? I know that you are an impostor, a make-believe, and worse!' "'Take it easy, Duke. I'm really not too enthusiastic over you. But this Colt revolver is not a make-believe. I am only going to bother your aristocratic memory with this one little idea that if there is any reporting to the captain or ship's officers to interfere with my services as ghostbreaker for the royal house of aragon there is going to be a nice band concert in the public square of your native town and the special number on the program will be the dead march from saul with pretty black crepe on the ducal doorknob do you catch my meaning you yankee pig i'm not a yankee i'm a johnny reb by birth and education but both yankees and rebels acquired a reputation for marksmanship about fifty years ago the jest died out of his voice one whimper from you damn you and i'll shoot you as i would a mad dog there was such a savage rasp in that mellow southern voice that the duke instinctively dodged backward as though expecting the first volley we shall see what we shall see were his final words and if i see you about the cabin of my cousin again well perhaps the officers of this ship may take a hand warren pursed his lips into an ironical grin you know, a member of my profession doesn't take a solemn oath to wait until the remains are resting in pieces. It might not be a difficult task to take up an avocation as well as a vocation. I wonder if I couldn't be a pretty good ghost-maker. Think it over. Jarvis, with a simple word of goodbye to the princess, returned to his own cabin, where he lost himself in slumber. The tortures of his trunk trip were still with him, in aching muscles and strained ligaments. The girl wondered what had become of him, for it was not until late in the evening that he telephoned to her at the suite. She was on the deck, listening to the orchestra concert. Nita responded at the phone. Jarvis surprised the girl by a voluble discourse in Spanish. He had mastered it in his tropical travels. It was to come in as a life-saving accomplishment before the end of the adventure. Tell me, Nita, have you good eyes? He curiously inquired. Ah, senor, so I am told, 
was the ingenuous reply. Well, in that sense, I have my doubts about their goodness. But what I want you to do, for the sake of your princess and her brother, is to keep those black eyes eternally watchful. I'm expecting some curious tricks from one we know. Let her know what you see, and she will tell me. Remember, keep looking, listening all the time. Nita promised, and Warren repaired to the lounge, where he observed the Duke nursing his ill humor over a lonesome absinthe frappe. Warren did not seek companionship either upon this journey. He knew too many men in the ranks of the international traders to dare risk recognition. The great roadway between New York and the European ports has now become a veritable promenade. Thronged with travelers, it is no longer a lonely passage. The great steamship was crowded on this trip. Rusty, being in good luck to obtain a stateroom, relinquished just before sailing time. With nearly 2,000 people on board, it was a floating town, and more than once, in the crowded decks and saloons, he caught glimpses of men he knew in club, college, or business. He would invariably beat a precipitate retreat. His daily procedure was hermit-like. With the exception of an early morning stroll, alone, on the promenade deck, he took no more chances after that first morning. His meals were served in his stateroom. From the splendid library of the ship, he secured ample reading material to while away the time. At night, he spent an hour in walking with the princess, and they were wonderful moments. Each evening he seemed to grow better acquainted with this unusual woman, finding beneath the surface of courtly reserve a depth of feeling, a breath of humanity, which would hardly have been believable from her calm, almost indifferent manner. Her education in an English school had internationalized her. Her wide knowledge of books in all the literatures of Europe, her familiarity with the best of art, poetry, the drama and music, had made of her a delightful, ever-surprising traveling companion. The girl was interested in everything American. She piled him with questions about the city, the country, the customs. Her brief stay in New York had been all too limited. Her curiosity was only whetted by the brief survey of externals, which is all that a stranger may get without the guidance of an initiate. To her, America represented a great new universe, teeming with vitality. Compared with the medievalism of her own country, the modernity of the States was a wonderful poetic drama of ideals, accomplishment, and goals worthwhile. "'What do you think of titles, Mr. Jarvis?' asked the girl one evening. "'When you made your recessional into the Middle Ages, by taking the feudal oath to me, you were flippant, almost sarcastic. Yet by my standards, I could not feel that any man could defend my interests with propriety unless he were of my own people.' So, you were adopted with more seriousness than you supposed. Jarvis flicked a cigarette into the swirling waters far beneath them as he answered, Titles do not appeal to Americans as a general thing. To the simpler folk, they represent the yoke of the ancient lion whose mane was cropped in 1776. To the broader folk, they are no more than the marks of family, 
although I must confess that your worthy cousin would create much fluttering of hearts and waving of ivory fans around Newport and Lenox, where American hearts of a sort and American fortunes of questionable worth are bartered for a tin-plated coronet. But that's the revenge of the great god of misfits. He turned toward her, resting his hand upon the rail. You are no different physically, mentally, and socially from many of the southern, northern, and western girls I have met in my own country. You are dependent upon the fashions to bring your charms to the utmost effectiveness. The princess blushed in the dark. But differing from many of them, you do succeed. He added. You are just as human as the fine girls I have met back home. Your titled classes correspond with the fine old families of the United States, and we have the advantage over you that by our own endeavor we can change the titles, by our own efforts, without waiting for the death of our loved ones. His mind turned to his own mother, to whom his successes had been a source of increasing happiness. I was only a little knight back home in Kentucky, when I was a tiny chap, as I went into the world and fought the battles and won some, after losing more, to my dad and the mother I became a prince. And the great thing about being a prince to your family in a republic, as compared with being a prince in a monarchy, is that a chap must keep on making good in the job, or he'll fail of election, just in the years when he wants it most. To tell you the truth, Your Highness, America is crowded with wealthy families, socially prominent, old colonial families, two or three million Mayflower blossoms, and similar Philistines. There are hundreds of clever people who make good annual incomes in our country with their ingenuity in connecting the Joneses and the Browns and the Smiths with Richard the Lionheart and Bill Conqueror, by marriage, in my native state, Kentucky, there are enough majors, colonels, and generals to officer the armies of Europe, and as for judges, there are enough badges, fraternity pins, cockades, and association medals to keep second-hand jewelers busy for their lifetimes. My countrymen are the most passionate collectors of heraldic certificates and genealogical maps in the world. The instinct for decoration is prevalent. The more obscure the family, the more plentiful the framed diplomas of aristocratic origin on the walls. The princess was unable to follow the cynicism of the speech, but a growing admiration for Jarvis's analytical powers led her to put confidence in his opinions. And what harm does it do? He concluded. They are titles of universal brotherhood and peace breeds more american colonels and majors than an international armageddon and it is all in the game and then you do not have such a disgust for titles and marks of good family after all she was almost eager in her inquisition of the vassal your serene highness has no cause for worry although you will doubtless never need care for any american opinion and Warren studied her face, as the fine silhouette was illuminated by the nearby deck light. 
for in my country a princess is recognized whether she wear ermine robes or a calico shirtwaist and a ragged skirt you see a republic is at least well illuminated we're not afraid of the light however i imagine that your title will be changed before another year and in that case you will have no cause for curiosity the girl's eyes burned as she questioned him what do you mean mr jarvis for a vassal you are decidedly presumptuous you need not come to court again until you are summoned good night and then she turned as jarvis maintained a discreet silence walking rapidly toward the promenade door of her suite he bade her good night without response jarvis remembered an old verse of the greatest balladist of the century for julia o'grady and the colonel's lady were both the same under the skin and i learned about women from her maria theresa was not in a mood to see jarvis for two more days instead of trying to win her forgiveness for a wrong he had not committed he stuck the closer to his stateroom where with the solicitous attention of rusty he lived a drone-like and peaceful existence poring over books they were not fiction or philosophy the kentuckian's interest was in baedeker and other books on spain with the same application which had carried him over the thin ice of college examinations he had grasped a valuable understanding of the customs and peculiarities of spain he gave a special attention to the railroad maps for warren was not trusting too implicitly to the permanent humility of the duke that worthy was passing a most disagreeable voyage he was naturally of an irascible dictatorial temperament accustomed to flattery and adulation on his return trip to the continent the ship's list comprised americans for the most part they were in little humor to conjole the swarthy sarcastic and unsociable spaniard their minds were too full of the pleasures of the months to come of plans and frolics and contemplation to sacrifice their time to this dour personage the duke endeavored to mellow his own discomfiture at maria theresa's coldness with numerous visits to the grill the result was a morning grouch an afternoon headache and a twilight bitterness that kept him permanently aloof from all companionship on two occasions he had observed warren in earnest and apparently friendly conversation with the captain and the first officer he was not aware that it was intended for his own benefit and that nothing more intimate than the weather was under discussion but it presaged a prompt information to the ghost-breaker in case he registered his complaint the duke's methods of warfare were not of the gallant charge against entrenchments variety he specialized in the executive ability which directs the activities of other men and so he bided his time the fifth evening out from new york harbor they were due some time the following day in the mercy dependent largely upon the tide and weather he could stand no longer the evident growth of friendliness between his cousin and her employed assistant maria theresa had forgiven the kentuckian for his jest without the formality of an apology because she was a woman she had once more yielded to her loneliness and walked the wind-swept promenade deck to discuss their common subjects 
as jarvis bade her good-night and stepped into the shadow of the deck he observed the aristocrat knocking angrily upon the cabin door let me in maria cried the duke in castilian i must talk to you for your own good i suppose that means my bad muttered jarvis i'll just smoke another cigarette in the neighborhood to see how things go the duke was admitted his conversation in the parlor of the suite seemed to last for half an hour at last the door opened and he reappeared he was talking excitedly at the doorway what i have said to you i would say before him were he not skulking in his cabin afraid of justice he is a pig of a poltroon cried his excellency i wish he were here now and i would tell it to his face the girl replied calmly so quietly indeed that jarvis could not distinguish the words but he stepped forward and laid a hand upon the nobleman's arm carlos jumped nervously as though bitten by a snake here i am your excellency let's hear what it is you have to say the other swallowed his collar speaking with difficulty i i cannot speak on the deck of the sheep he exclaimed then come into my cabin again said the princess with pardonable asperity you may tell mr jarvis your opinion of him now jarvis gave the duke an ungentle shove with the result that the troublesome door threshold again intercepted to demonstrate the laws of gravity the duke sprawled most unromantically upon the deck inside he scrambled to his feet muttering spanish oaths dog if you were my equal socially i would challenge you he spluttered if you were my equal physically i would punch your head was the apt reply of the american now let's hear this opinion which you are so anxious to tell to my face there was a humorous twinkle in the dark eyes of the princess and warren observed down the passageway to the private stateroom the smiling face of nita the maid well mr warren i merely said that i know you to be what you yankees call a humbug for some purposes of your own perhaps to attempt a theft of this imaginary fortune you are trying to get to seguro however and at the quiet interest on the face of jarvis he was emboldened to make his statements more emphatic i have my doubts about your honesty in the whole matter and that means what your excellency i don't believe you even intend to risk the chances in spain you have duped my cousin a helpless innocent girl ignorant of the sharp ways of american adventurers you have secured a free passage on this ship and doubtless an advance payment to engage you i would wager anything that you will never see spain in this case jarvis smiled ingratingly you are a clever student of character such men make good gamblers how much are you willing to wager on this little affair how much will you bet that i do not appear in spain the duke of alva bit his lip he had lost too much in recent gamings to afford greater risks just now but he was a sportsman particularly did he wish to impress his kinswoman i will wager a thousand pounds of english money five thousand dollars in your american rags that you will not appear at seguro in time to help the princess 
that's a great deal of money, especially for a hard-working businessman like myself, answered Warren. What are the exact stipulations of this wager? I might borrow the money from the princess as an advance payment for breaking the ghost. Carlos sneered exultantly. Yes, you might borrow it, but there is not so much ready money around Seguro. My terms, if you care to know them, are these. I wager the thousand pounds that you will not be at Seguro three nights from tomorrow, the time when we will arrive according to the train schedule. However, why should I waste talk with a man on a bet which is not for tradesmen, but for gentlemen? Who would hold the stakes? The duke smiled and waved a gallant hand toward his cousin. Who better than my kinswoman, the Princess of Aragon? Who better? echoed Jarvis. He was fumbling with his waistcoat, his back to the princess and her cousin. Suddenly, with a jerk, he brought forth a leather money belt, which had been tightly bound about his body, diagonally over one and under another shoulder. The duke's eyes protruded. Jarvis dropped the treasure chest upon the table, while even the princess evidenced her surprise. Opening the little pockets which joined each other along its entire length, he began to pile up gold pieces. I believe I have the amount handy, Your Excellency, he remarked amiably. May I trouble you to invite you to produce the money for your own side of the bet? We have a vulgar custom among us in America of requesting the other man to either put up or shut up. It happened that this cash had been carefully drawn from his resources before the eventful last evening at the club. Jarvis had prepared himself for all extingencies. He had not imagined that the first use would be a reversal to the ancient custom of his ancestors in the Bluegrass State, a bet upon a race. But blood would tell, and here he was in the time-honored custom of the family. The Duke had not seen so much cash since his last ill-fated pilgrimage to Monte Carlo. He was staggered. But the musical laugh of the princess brought back the haughty savoir-faire for which he was noted. Ah, well, I understand you, sir, he stammered with improving volubility. Very good. As the Duke of Alva, it is not necessary for me to produce the exact cash on the spot. The word of a Spanish nobleman is as good as his bond. It is a wager, and the terms stand. His black eyes studied the pile of gold coins with sparkling interest. Very good, twice in the same place. The word of a Kentuckian is as good as his bond. I agree to let the princess be the stakeholder. She may hold your word and my money belt. Your Serene Highness, will you do me the honor? And he turned toward the blushing girl as he handed over the treasure. The insult was not lost on the Duke, but as Jarvis reached for his hat, he could not resist a final slap. Good night, Your Highness. I advise you to be very careful with the lock on the door. The ship lands tomorrow evening, and some villain may break into your stateroom, rob you of the Duke's word of honor, and sell it to some enterprising Liverpool pawnbroker. Pleasant dreams. 
I hope to welcome you to Seguro, Your Excellency. Don't spend the five thousand until you get there. Remember, the home industries need encouragement. And he walked out to the promenade deck. The Duke looked at his cousin, flushed a swarthy red at the cynical laugh on her pretty face. Then he, too, hurried out through the saloon passage. He was anxious to get to his own stateroom to think things over. End of chapter 10